0: Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. Every night when the light switched off, familiar objects in your room mutate. What daylight tames, the dark untames. Bookshelves, reading lamp a dressing gown draped on the door, all gather a silent force. The stillness feels alive, as if each thing is deciding how to behave. At first, there's a thrill to this sudden chaos. You're lying in your bed, not yet listening to the in and out of your own breathing, not yet decoding the noises in and outside the house. The shimmer of the dark makes lying in bed feel less like surrendering. You've used all your wiles to put off this moment, and yet it turns out your limbs are heavy and the sheets are cool. You wait. You're waiting for a voice, for a story to crack open the dark. And here it comes. Once upon a time, before for papyrus or cuneiform or the illuminated manuscript, there was an adult and a child in the dark. Adults might say the words, but children waiting for sleep make the stories. They direct them, picturing the actors, their costumes, the sets and special effects, and the stories make the child, filling a mind with the struggles and solutions of the character that child accompanies, characters who may explain the nature of the dark. The dark comes because a sister who is the sun is fleeing her violent brother, the moon, according to a myth from ancient Japan. A brother is the sun who won't let his sister share power, She's the moon in Filipino mythology, and he gouges out one of her eyes so that when she rains, her vision starts to disintegrate. As she sees less and less, she also becomes less visible, waning until she disappears from the sky. In a Native American myth, the sun brother also violates the moon sister who, overcome with shame, hides more and more of her face each night. The darkness comes in an Aztec tale because the prideful, violent sun gods can't stop fighting, plunging the world into darkness. And then in a story against the grain, told north of the country where we are now, the moon is a fat and vain old man. Each month his wives start chopping chunks off him with their axes, creating the waning moon and leaving him mortally wounded. He's only dead three days before the cycle starts again. So, you lie in the dark and perhaps a story is throbbing in your head. Down the ages, we've told our young tales driven by fear of monsters, strangers, wolves, God, of straying off the path, of abandonment, of growing up, of not growing up, Fear as a thrill, as a tool, as a weapon, a millstone. No wonder you're frightened to lie alone in a dimly lit room. Freud believed a child's fear of the dark was connected to separation anxiety. He wrote, I once heard a child who was afraid of the darkness call out, Auntie, talk to me, I'm frightened. But what good will that do? You can't see me to which the child replied, if someone talks, it gets lighter. I was looking for a book to explain the dark to my children. Their father had a blood cancer and we were told the prognosis was poor. What story could help them? Each book in our house seemed to be full of anthropomorphic animals in a carnival of primary colors, singing, dancing, leading their best lives. Okay, I thought, let's go back to the start and see what bedtime stories people told their children in periods of plague and war. This was after all in 2018, a more innocent age, pre-war, pre-plague, an eternity ago. For most of human history, children heard our oral tales drawn from a well of experience and imagination, tales that were traded and gifted, fusing with the stories of other people. A story, writes Ferris Jaber, is a choreographed hallucination and within each fever dream, our ancestors embedded their most precious information. And in all these hallucinations, death was usually just around the corner. In 1001 Nights, stories netted from ancient Persia and North Africa, from West and Central and South Asia, death arrives with war, famine, infidelity and lovesickness. It can have a great fortune attached or leave the survivors to go hungry. It comes in circumstances of horror. An army of men have their eyes torn out by an army of birds, sometimes by their talons and sometimes with their beaks and a farce. A genie is fatally hit to the heart with a date pit. I believed at this point, I was going to find some forgotten gem to help the kids withstand what was coming. In these stories, death was made compact. It was given a beginning, middle and an end. The stories contained it, shrinking it down. Good, I thought. We too can put death in its place and its right place is an old tale far away from us. I kept reading. In European folk tales of the Middle Ages, plague is the constant backstory. The disease broke out in 1376. And I do wonder if folk thought to themselves, this has been a really shitty year. Bring on 1377. <laughs> Only to find that outbreaks of the disease continued for the next 300 years. (laughs) The plague was trailed by the printing press with a separate literature for children emerging most broadly in the 17th century. The Puritans tried using printed works to stamp out popular oral tales that provided glimpses of various human desires and depravities, as one clergyman put it, as filthy as heart can think. Cinderella, whose slipper was originally fashioned of fur, then of silk, before the French fairy tale master Charles Perrault changed it to glass in 1697, is on kitchen duties in one ancient rendition because after her mother's death, her father decides he will marry her. Thus, she's fled from home penniless. Young readers being born of original sin were given evangelical works such as the preacher, James Janeway's cheery 1671 offering, a token for children being an exact account of the conversion, holy and exemplary lives and joyful deaths of several young children. And you know, we can snicker, but this book stayed in print for the next 200 years. If I was having trouble finding the right book, I was at least starting to find a way to look at the world. Because if these books hold up a mirror to contemporary society, it can work as a two-way mirror. Children's literature can give a frame through which to see the world. In this country, uh, a few of you, it seems, might be celebrating today. We've just for a farewelled a traveling salesman trying to spruik magic beans. And uh, these beans have been genetically modified so that uh, they, you know, no plant will grow too high, and that no one can actually, you know, get to the giant and uh, share his gold. Um, and but we, you know, at the same time, it's like we have woken. Today, uh, the villagers just sort of peeking out to see if it is true that the giant is dead. (laughs) We've woken in a different country and yet in the days to come, we'll have to recognize that there are other monsters roaming this story. For decades, long before the war in Ukraine, Putin has relished and cultivated his reputation in the West as a storybook supervillain. I don't mean to to make a joke of this, but who thinks to poison their enemy's underpants? I mean, you know, to actually think of putting nerve uh, agent into somebody's wife rants—it's—it's it's sort of so literary, and. He is Count Olaf from Lemony Snicket's, a series of unfortunate events. A rapacious, vicious, medieval, in, he's, a, he's a psychopath. But then in this story, the good guys aren't really, uh, they don't necessarily inspire great hope either. We have Boris Johnson, who's straight out of the wind in the willows. Uh, he's toad, bumptious, Vain, ridiculous, and as charming as he is, intolerable. Biden is Grandpa Joe. And he has whipped off his nightcap and leapt out of bed for one last pre-senile whirl around the chocolate factory. (laughs) And here, you know, I don't want to ruin the party, uh, but... Albo, he can also, he looks like a, a character from a picture book about starting school. <laughs> it's perpetually his first day, he's tongue tied and his new clothes don't seem to fit him properly. The best stories though, they can surprise us. And I mean, of course, the great plot twist here is that Australians want more women in the tale. I just think let's just get in more. I think bring in the crone, a witch, a bad fairy, an evil stepmother, an ice queen, a virgin, a whore. Let's get into the story. As many women and and people who are gender diverse, let's drop them in and and maybe the rest of us will stand a chance. Thank you. Anyway, I was lecturing you about 17th century children's literature uh, to avoid talking about my partner, Don Watson's near fatal illness. So if you'll let me continue. Uh, It was the English philosopher, John Locke, who argued in 1693, that if children were to be given easy, pleasant books, they might play themselves into that, namely study that others are whipped for. Locke ushered in the modern idea of childhood and indeed of parenthood. Knowledge could be inscribed on one's offspring as on a blank slate, changing their minds and potentially creating a moral and intellectual masterpiece. Jean-Jacques Rousseau's writings of the next century further eroded religion's insistence that children were tainted with sin. It became the enlightened view that babies arrive in the world blameless. And now childhood, according to the historian, Kimberly Reynolds, was imbued with a set of positive meanings and attributes. And I just wanna take a guess that Locke and Rousseau weren't actually involved in the day-to-day labor of caring for any young children. Um, But childhood now was seen as a time of innocence, freedom, creativity, emotion, spontaneity, and perhaps most importantly for those charged with with raising and educating children malleability. Publishers very soon realised that appealing to parents' nostalgia and aspiration was highly commercial. A German schoolmaster on visiting the 1787 Leipzig Book Fair was stunned at the range on offer, almanacs for children, newspapers for children, journals for children, collections for children, comedies for children, dramas for children, geography for children, history for children, physics, logic, catechisms, travel, morals, grammar, poetry, sermons, letters, talks, unlimited variations. Children's books then as now became one of the most profitable areas of publishing, subsidizing many of us at the adult end of the business. At one point, standing in a bookshop looking for the right story for my kids, I scanned the available feast and noticed the same diet of improvement as the German schoolmaster and the same anxieties and aspirations around moulding children. And I wondered if these books, however well-meaning, were all tokens of would-be colonisers. Children live in another country, wrote Penelope Lively, and although it's a country we have all passed through, to pass beyond it is to have lost, irretrievably, I believe, its languages and its beliefs. Baudelaire referred to genius as childhood recalled at will, but perhaps the most common condescension of adults is to think we remember what it is to be a small child. The books we give kids are our attempts to map this lost country. But the historian of children's literature, John Morganston, warns against conflating socialization or acculturation with colonization, an inversion as he writes of the true situation. Colonization is a case of inappropriate and often violent socialization. The the analogy is only meaningful because children are different from adults. It is true, however, that so many of our best known and loved works for children are inherently colonial. The literary movement referred to as the first golden age of children's publishing, a period dating 1865 to 1926, corresponds almost exactly with the golden age of empire. Children now met Alice in Wonderland, Peter Rabbit, Huck Finn, The Little Women, Toad of Toad Hall, Pooh Bear, Peter and Wendy, and the the feral weirdness of folk stories about the dark and the violence of the moon and the sun became a boutique concern. If mainstream children's books were suddenly free of religious didacticism, they now had a spirit of imperial evangelism. Children read Treasure Island and dreamt of adventure and riches in far off exotic places. This was Treasure Island was the favorite book of C.S. Lewis, just as Chronicles of Narnia from the so-called second golden age of children's literature was the favorite book of Kamala Shamsi, who's written about the choice she made growing up in Karachi to ignore the fact that the villains were all dark-skinned men in turbans so that she could continue her make-believe game of living in Narnia. Evelyn Arulian has also written brilliantly of how she, but Evelyn Lewin has written brilliantly of how she and her siblings would curl in each other's bed to hear stories of our bush friends, Blinky Bill, Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie, books with appalling racist subtext. We can dismiss these books, we can be embarrassed and ashamed of them, but if you read them as children, as Evelyn's written, you're still in some way wired by their pages. In childhood, stories and their illustrations enter the bloodstream in a way that doesn't quite happen when you're a grown-up. The best books written for children, though, do have a dual focus. They're addressed to the child and to the adult that that child will become. And as adults, we have to renegotiate our relationship with work we we once may have loved and find new bedtime stories for the next generation. We have to grow up. To use another example, it's not useful to share Peter Pan's distaste for aging. In the hundred years since he flew in our nursery window, his desire for youth has become a cultural phenomenon. In scientifically advanced nations, death now takes place in hospitals or nursing homes out of view, a medical failure rather than a natural process. And to protect our children, to protect them, rarely does it make an appearance within their beautifully illustrated picture books. During Don's illness, I found that I... found and then rejected various books about mortality as too mawkish or too clunky or too saccharine, I didn't think that I had the problem, that I couldn't bear to say certain words about a father to his sons. Then suddenly it would be dark again and we were drawing the curtains and straightening the bedclothes and turning out the light with the pixelated dark and all its terrors rushing towards us. We use our imaginations to get to the truth and to blur it. A few days ago, you may have read in The Guardian about the last child living in a village in the Ukraine's northeast. This eight-year-old boy's town is now rubble and he and his family exist in a dark basement. Each day, as they listen for nearby shelling, the boy sits at a table with a tiny LED light and draws. With his crayons and textures, he often sketches monsters. Now that article was, say, a thousand words, and from this distance, if we want to imagine what life might be like for him, we're cast into stories. Reading the news is like being thrown back into the age-old tales of orphans, but also the post-World War II stories of destroyed buildings and destroyed lives. The 12 million refugees bring to mind books such as Judith Kerr's When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit about Kerr's own family fleeing Nazi Germany. Monsters in Stories try to steal meaning just as the hero seeks to find and save it. The monster and the hero battle over making sense and giving a pattern to what is ultimately random. To accurately portray the monster on the page in texter or in text is to freeze it and put it in a cage. A story like a drawing is an attempt to make the world static, to hold everything in place long enough for us to understand it. The problem, as I said, being that we use stories to get to the truth and to obscure it. We can see the child at the table and go too far into our imaginations, thinking of other children in wartime, finding an old wardrobe which leads to another magical land. We see the ruined towns and think of Mordor and want to believe that an army of friendly orcs and trolls will suddenly fly in and that Aslan will appear in the distance. We find ourselves here surrounded by ash and tell our children or perhaps really ourselves tales of enchanted forests and magical trees but can we change the actual story that we're in? How do we rewrite the ending as we career towards it? Sometimes I wonder if we're so wired by a three-act structure that moves from separation, adventure, return, with a crisis at its centre that we only know to willfully barrel towards it. At a certain point back in my own house, dealing with our own conversation around mortality, I felt the full absurdity of the tales we serve up to children. We'd kept up our diet of happier bedtime tales, and inevitably, I'd find a book in my hand about one or other world-famous rabbit. Dick Brunner's Miffy, or Peter Rabbit himself, or The Rabbit in Goodnight Moon, tucked up in bed and farewelling everything in the green room. Good night, comb. Good night, brush. Good night to the old lady whispering, hush. And while doing this, let me tell you, it's surprisingly easy to disregard the way that these cute little fuckers have absolutely screwed the topsoil across this continent. Likewise, I was reading about Elmer the elephant helping a lion find its lost teddy and a mouse going to swimming lessons and a friendly polar bear dentist all the time trying not to think about the fact that we are in the midst of a mass extinction. We can disney almost anything. I want you to picture a storybook bat Generally, we prefer our storybook creatures to be big-eyed with cute faces. We are not really interested. We don't want to read about, you know, animals or the the bits of nature that we deem ugly. So, uh, let's picture a pretty little toddler with sweet little wings, uh, more like a kid in a Halloween cape turn the page, oh, the bat accidentally bumps into a stall holder or a lab worker and oops, now everybody you know has COVID. <laughs> We've been using animal stories to socialise children from way before Aesop, and as adults we view these stories as a well-meant sham. We feel that it's important for children to see animals' lives as nuanced as full of hopes and dreams and fears until these young readers are old enough to realize their parents were really just talking about human hopes and and dreams and fears. And, And then these supposed animal preoccupations and they're then regarded as babyish and the animals are empty vessels discarded. And rather than building a connection to nature, it severs one. About five months after Don's diagnosis, in the midst of this reckoning about storytelling, about our own perpetual desire for a fairy tale ending, we had our own miracle. His prognosis was revised. A mutation had just been discovered in his blood cancer, which meant he could be given chemotherapy. And indeed, within the year, he was in remission. Through the months of chemo, knowing that there was hope, I could finally come around, come around to talking openly with our kids about their father's situation. I could let darkness into their lives or recognise that it was impossible to keep it out. And I could face what suddenly seemed wholly insane, that as a society, we will spend vast fortunes keeping ourselves alive while we let forests and river systems and the Great Barrier Reef die. Throughout the history of children's literature, there's a constant swing between the fantastical and the didactic. So for instance, the wild oral story and the puritanical tract. Now in bookstores, the polemics for children are, you can save the world, Planet SOS, old enough to save the planet. Our house is on fire, Greta's story, kids fight plastic. And as I take them off the shelf, I wanna say to my sons, look, I know that only recently I was reading to you about rabbits um, and the rabbits were tucked under patchwork quilts, but, and I'm I'm sorry, I forgot to mention um, that if you don't manage to solve Climate change, uh, you know, we are all gonna plunge into darkness. Sleep, sleep well, good, good night. <clears throat> what can we take from the best of children's tales to speed up change? I know that the thought sounds crazy after everything I've just said, but bear with me for a moment. We can all remember, writes Francis Buford in his brilliant memoir, The Child That Books Built, readings that acted like transformations. There were times when a particular book, like a seed crystal, dripped into our minds when they were exactly ready for it, like a super saturated solution and suddenly we changed. Do you remember that book for you? Do you remember the drench of it, the secret thrill, the aliveness of it? That doesn't happen in quite the same way ever again. I take a few things from Spuford's beautiful analogy. Firstly, we can change our minds. Today of all days, we must see that we can rewire our minds with stories, We can do it and we have to do it. And in my vision, we do it from the ground up. Children's books do try to instill a sense of agency Part of the business of storytelling is to educate children to see themselves as the hero, not just the central character at the mercy of other forces, but the active hero who may find that suddenly the horizon line blurs, but they have the strength to deal with that changed view. Children's stories are full of the meek defeating the mighty, and the independents have just climbed the beanstalk. We can also take from Spewford's recollection of the seed crystal dripping into his mind that imagination is serious. One way to produce a different future is to imagine a different future. What would a planet without the crisis look like? What if we rewrote that story structure and humans lived peaceably with nature? And, And how would that look? What would 2050 actually look like then. The radical unbridled imagination that we celebrate in children's literature might loosen some idea in a future scientist or an inventor or an activist that does save us. And I I have another plea on this, which is that we need to wean ourselves off stories for children in which we infantilize them to soothe ourselves stories in which animals' lives are less important and where we plunder other lands. The Grimm brothers recognised that the thrill of fairy stories came from the sense that all life forms are interconnected, a philosophy we need to learn from First Nations storytellers. Our best hope is that here we are together in this room, in this world, in the pitch of dark, and we're at the point in the story where things have looked really, 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 really bleak, and yet, incredibly, the plot is about to turn. So let this this be the moment just before the great transformation where we find something heroic in ourselves, and there is a miraculous change. Finally, did I find the book that I was looking for? Not entirely, but I found out once again that we're all of us, the children of Scheherazade, hoping to make it through another night, grasping for the right story to find our way through the dark. Thank you. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to swf.org.au for more great content.